If you would open your Bible to 1 Peter, we're going to continue in chapter 1. For those of you who know me, know that I, I love to go to Colorado, I love the mountains, few things can renew my spirit and revive me as much as a glimpse of the mountains in Colorado. So to drive there, you get on 287 and you just start going north, you cut through Amarillo and then you cut through the New Mexico-Texas border and then you cut through the New Mexico-Colorado border and there at the New Mexico-Colorado border is some of the most beautiful land in all of America. You've got the, the, the New Mexico canyons and off in the horizon you see the Colorado mountains, it's breathtaking. So I see the mountains off into the horizon, and, and they, they, they just look like part of the landscape, but they're so beautiful and majestic. But the closer you get to the mountains, the bigger the mountains grow. Actually, the mountains don't grow, do they? They're immutable, they're unchanging, they're constant. But the closer I get in my proximity to the mountains, the larger they appear, because I see the mountains for what they really are. And when I get up to the base of the mountains, they're breathtaking. I see how small I am, how magnificent the mountains are, and my pulse begins quickening, my heart begins beating fast because I know that I'm going to hike one of these mountains. And I begin hiking the mountains the next day, and I have layers of clothes because it's cold, and and the higher I get on the mountain, I realize it gets steeper and it becomes a little more tricky to navigate. So I might take my backpack off and leave it here and remember where it is on my way down. And I keep hiking higher and I get higher. And since I have a few layers of clothes, maybe I take one coat off and I leave it there. I hike higher and then I maybe take a sweater off, wrap it around my waist, continue to hike higher. And then I get to the summit of the mountain. <sighs> The air is crisp. The view is breathtaking. And if I'm hiking with somebody, it's an inspiration to those around me to continue to ascending themselves because the summit is within reach. Now that mountain is a picture of holiness. We're talking about holiness today, but keep this in mind. Holiness is not simply about things that we do. Now there are some things in our ascent to holiness that we certainly need to stop doing and we certainly need to start doing immediately. But holiness in and of itself is not about what we do. That's simply a result. The true essence of holiness is not about what we do, it's about what we desire. Cassidy and Luke both touched on that. The true essence of holiness is not an outside job, it's an inside job. It's not about what we do, it's primarily about what we desire. And God is that mountain. And some of you may see God from a distance and He may not seem that impressive and He may not compel you into an adventure where you explore Him with every ounce of your being. But the closer you get to God, the bigger God is, but He's immutable. God doesn't really change. He doesn't really grow. But you see Him for who He really is. And as you see God for who He really is, you see how majestic, splendid, splendorous, glorious, loving, gracious, holy, righteous, altogether good God is. And you find an adventure in exploring God irresistible. And so you start ascending the mountain of holiness. Not because you're trying to do this or do that, but because your whole desires have shifted once you've caught a glimpse of who God really is, and you are compelled to explore God, and you begin ascending the mountain of holiness by desiring God more, 
desiring to see him, desiring to know him, desiring to be like him, desiring to reflect him. And as you ascend the mountain of holiness, there's layers of your life and there's layers of your character that you begin shedding. I don't need that. I don't want that. And you ascend higher and higher in this mountain of holiness. And as you ascend the mountain of holiness, the peace of God fills your spirit. The view is breathtaking. You have vision. You have joy. You have passion. You have wisdom. You have clarity. And your life serves as an inspiration to those around you to continue to ascend the mountain of holiness themselves. Now, where are you this morning? Are you on the, 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 the apex of the mountain of holiness, or are you at the very base of the mountain of holiness because you've tumbled down and you're broken and battered? You know, whether you're at the height of the mountain of holiness, or you're scaling with excitement and adventure this mountain of holiness, or whether you've tumbled down to the base of the mountain, God loves you the same. He loves you when you're at the apex, and he loves you when you're at the base. But the quality of life is very different from when you're at the apex of the mountain of holiness and when you're at the base of the mountain of holiness. The quality of life, the joy of life, your testimony in life is drastically different. So if you have your Bibles, look at me, if you would, in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. We are talking about ascending the mountain of holiness. There was a song uh, when I was in college and a Young Life leader that we used to sing a lot. It was called Holiness. Holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness is what you want from me. And then the course goes on to say, so take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it. Take my life and form it to yours, to yours, O Lord. And this is the outline of our text. God wants to transform our mind. God wants to conform our will. God wants to form our life to His, to holiness. And so as we walk through this text, my question to you is threefold. How's your thought life in your ascent to holiness? How's your heart life in your ascent to holiness? And how's your life in your ascent to holiness? So let's read it. Verse 13. Therefore, with minds, and Luke touched on this, holiness is an inside job. With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your heart on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So let's begin there. How's your thought life in relation to holiness? In 1969... The United States set a man on the moon. The first boots on the moon were Neil Armstrong. And the statement he made was one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The next day, the headlines in the papers read, Mankind has conquered outer space. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the real challenge, the real accomplishment is not conquering outer space, it's conquering inner space. We are so often focused on our outer space, events and circumstances and how people act and uh, how things go around us, but the real ascent to holiness is inner space. It's our thought life. 
Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, the thought life, the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The thought life, the mind governed by the flesh is death. You're a trichotomy, I'm a trichotomy, we're made in the image of God, that means that we're eternal beings, but it also means that God is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one, and we're a trichotomy, spirit, body, and soul. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the word of God is profitable for dividing soul and spirit. And what does this mean? Well, look at it like this. Here's your body. Here is your soul. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, here's the spirit of Christ. That soul within us is that aspect of us that desires, that longs, that thinks, that feels with, 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 with ambitions. Now, oftentimes, the body, the flesh, that means in which we relate to the world around us through our five senses, has so affected our soul that we become callous to the Spirit of Christ within us. But the Spirit of Christ, that aspect of God that can infuse our soul with peace, joy, love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, desires to so affect our soul that it dominates our body and subjects our body so that our soul is not so affected by the five senses of the world around us. Therefore, with minds... This is our thought life. This is our soul being so influenced, so affected by the Spirit of God that are alert. How many of you guys are reading out of a King James Version Bible? Your translation is very interesting. It says, with minds that are girded up, gird the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's what the King James reads. Interesting, isn't it? Gird up the loins of your mind. And I think actually the King James Version in this particular instance has the best translation of this passage. Gird up the loins of your mind. What in the world does that mean? Well, you know, back in the day 2,000 years ago, they didn't wear jeans and boots. Not even the men. They wore robes. Today in the Middle East, they still wear robes. And they went all the way down to their ankles. They did it because it was the fashion of the day. It looked sharp. I mean, imagine a nice, clean, pressed, tapered robe, how sharp that would look. But there was a problem with that particular fashion. And when they went about working, or especially when they went about running, they would trip over their robes. I officiate weddings today, and we, we I've officiated many, many weddings, and in the wedding rehearsals, no matter how rigid and ruthless the wedding coordinator is, most all of them forget to take into account the bride's robe and heels the next day. I've seen more than one bride take a tumble, because the robe can get in the way. So if you have a robe 2,000 years ago, you had to gird up the loins of your robe. In other words, you had to tuck the robe into your belt in order to run. Now, I would never advise a bride to do that, but they ought to think through how to, how to navigate their robe. So in this particular day, 2,000 years ago, they had to gird up the loins of their robe. They had to tuck their robe into their, into their belt, and that's how they, they were able to run. The equivalent today for us would be roll up your sleeves and get to work. It would be be focused. How's your thought life? Is it alert? Have you rolled up your sleeves? In football or in track, you set your, you set your mind to the goal. In any sport, you set your mind to a goal. 
In any academic achievement, you set your mind to a goal. In any vocal, vocational accomplishment, you set your mind to a goal. And in order to ascend the mountain of holiness, we have to gird up the loins of our minds. We have to set our mind to a goal. We have to focus. We have to roll up our sleeves. We have to be serious about it. With minds that are alert and fully sober. In other words, what is your mind influenced by? Is your mind more influenced by your body and how it relates to the five senses around you? Or is your mind more influenced by the Spirit of Christ? Are you sober this morning? How many of you this morning are really just kind of drunk and you're still hungover from last night? Raise your hand. No, don't raise your hand. (laughs) But Peter is not talking about just don't be like hungover. Now, he's certainly at least talking about that, but he's talking about more than that. He's talking about don't allow your mind to be influenced by anything other than the Spirit of Christ and the Word of Christ. And if at any time your mind is influenced by something other than the Spirit and Word of Christ, then your mind by that degree is drunk with the world. And we are called to have fully sober minds influenced by the Spirit of Christ, the promises of Christ, the Word of Christ. And we do this by focusing on Christ, focusing on our relationship with Christ, focusing on the promises of Christ, and we do this all the time. When Jesus first called the author of this book, Peter, to follow him, Peter was fishing, and he said, drop your nets, follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross. Jesus invited Peter to deny himself, and Peter began following And at the end of their three and a half year time, Peter didn't deny himself, he denied Christ, that he even knew him. And at any one time in our life, we are either denying ourselves and ascending the mountain of holiness, or we are denying Christ, and our minds are drunk with the world. We have to stay focused on Christ, focused on his promises, focused on worship. Focus on loving Christ. Focus on loving others with the truth and the gospel of Christ. Always. All the time. Because at any one time, we are either denying ourselves and ascending the mountain of holiness or denying Christ and tumbling to the base of the mountain of holiness. We can never say yes to Christ and yes to our flesh at the same time. We can never deny our flesh and deny Christ at the same time. It's one of the two. We are at any one time denying ourselves and following or denying Christ and tumbling. So with minds that are alert, you've girded up the loins of your mind. And fully sober... Your thought life is not contaminated by, diluted by, diminished by anything other than Christ. And you set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. And right now we're asking this question. How's your thought life? And in order to have a thought life that's ascending the mountain of holiness, we have to set our minds on Christ. We have to have fully sober minds. And we have to have a mind that's, whose hope, our, our mind's hope must be set, it must be fixated upon Jesus Christ. And Cassidy gave a great testimony about this earlier. How often do we get sidetracked by sometimes bad things, but even just good things? secondary hopes, rather than the primary hope of, watch our primary hope, 
Jesus Christ being revealed at His coming. The second coming of Christ. Do we long for the second coming of Christ? Do we long for Jesus to return? If we don't, it's because our love for Jesus has grown cold because we've become so comfortable here in this world. When I go camping, I take my tent, I take my sleeping bag, I take an air up mattress, I take it easy a little bit with my mattress. I take some blankets, I take my dog, but guess what I don't take? I don't take the house, I don't take the, I don't take the kitchen table, I don't take my couch, I don't take my coffee table, I don't take my bed. Why? Because I'm camping. I don't get too comfortable. It's temporary. I'm looking forward to coming home. And we have just been instructed by Peter not to get too comfortable here. We're camping. We're soldiers. Let's look forward to our homecoming. There was a book, popular book written, a bestseller called Your Best Life Now. I'm sure it has some encouraging things into it, but the title and the whole premise of the book is off. Our best life is not now. Our best life is in eternity. It's in glory. We are not to store up for ourselves treasures now. We're to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We're not supposed to try to see how comfortable we, we can be now. We're pilgrims. We're camping. We're just passing through. Our real home is in heaven, and we're to look forward to getting home or for our Savior to come home and retrieve us and take us back with Him. One of our, our youth uh, calls me uh, Passenger Shane. The kids get into the car when we go eat lunch, and they're like, Pastor Shane, Pastor Shane, Pastor Shane. And this one little girl named Jayla says, hey, Passenger Shane. And I tried to correct her at first. I said, no, Pastor Shane. And she said, Passenger Shane. And I said, no, Pastor Shane. And she said, Passenger Shane. And so I said, you know what, I'm just going to roll with it. Because every time she calls me Passenger Shane, it's a reminder to me not to get too comfortable here. I'm simply a passenger. I'm passing through this life. And to store for myself treasures in heaven. Let's not dilute the primary hope of Christ returning and seeing his face with all of these secondary hopes. Some might be good, but they're not the best. And they only have a shelf life of 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Any other hope besides the primary hope has a very limited shelf life. For example, if your hope doesn't work, if you're in prison then it's not a real hope at all. It's not the primary hope. If your hope can't give you peace and joy and strength if you're in a third world impoverished country, then it's no hope at all. If your hope can't sustain your soul and invigorate your soul if you're on your deathbed, then it's no hope at all. It has a very limited shelf life, and we're called to set our sights on the primary hope. And that primary hope is our Lord and Savior is returning for us. Christians used to be focused on that. The return of Christ. Now Christians are focused on how comfortable can you be. Pastors stand up in front of mega congregations, I kid you not, and they brag about a hangar full of private planes and boast about God's faithfulness in their life. But our hope is not to be comfortable here. Our hope is to be strangers and aliens and foreigners here because we're storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven and we're looking forward to the return of Christ. Many of the hymns were written about this primary hope. Swing low, sweet chariot. It was a picture of uh, Elijah's chariot coming forth to carry us home. It was written by slaves in the States in the 1800s, longing for a better home. Perhaps 
our love for Christ has grown cold and we're not longing for his return because we've missed the mark and we're trying to make our best life now when Jesus said deny yourself and store up treasures in heaven and look forward to heaven. This is countercultural from what you're probably used to seeing on the bookshelves or seeing on Christian television. But again, if your hope doesn't work in a third world country, on your deathbed, on death row, it's no hope at all. Let's look at the very last page of your Bible. Hold your place in First Peter and look at the very last page of your Bible. It's Revelation chapter 22. I love how the Bible begins, but do you know how the Bible ends? Most of us know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but do you know how this beautiful book that has changed the world ends? The last page? Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride. Who's the Spirit? The Spirit of Christ that's within you and within me. The Spirit and the Bride. Who's the Bride? The Bride is the church. It's Christians. It's you and me. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Notice the exclamation mark. That is our longing. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty say, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And how does Jesus respond to this longing of the Spirit of Christ and you and me, the church, the bride? He says in verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And the Spirit and the bride say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Do you have this longing in your heart to see the face of Christ? Or should Christ tarry His coming to go and be with Him? The Apostle Paul had it. They said, Paul, if you don't shut up about Jesus, we are going to kill you. And he said, oh, would you please? You see, I have this problem because for me to be, to, to go on living in the body, well, for, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For to go on living in the body that's profitable for you, but to depart from the body, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. And this is far better. This is what I want. This is what I long for. Unfortunately, I know I'm going to have to continue on because it's best for your faith. But if it were up to me, I would depart. So you can't threaten me with death because you're threatening me to see the face of Christ. And that's what my heart longs for. That's like the dean of a school bringing a student in and saying, if you don't shape up, we're going to graduate you with honors. And they're like, okay. Or that's like telling a bride, if you don't shape up, we're going to go on and, and make you get married. And she's like, okay. Or that's like telling an employee, if you don't shape up, we're going to promote you to become VP around here. And they're like, okay. They said, Paul, if you don't shut up, we're going to kill you. And he was like, okay. <laughs> to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. That's a graduation. That's what I really long for. Do you long for Jesus? Or are you trying to get comfortable in this world? Are you trying to make your best life now? So let's go back to 1 Peter. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope, this is your heart, on the grace to be brought to you through Jesus Christ when he is revealed. How's your thought life? In 2004, Matt Emmons was in the Olympics representing the United States, and the competition was 50-meter rifle shooting competition. He had the gold wrapped up. He was in first place by far. It was his last round. All he had to do was get near the bullseye, just near it, and he would, had the gold wrapped up. So he braced to fire. He shot, but it didn't register on his target. He was in lane three. 
It registered in lane two. He shot the target in the wrong lane. This was a mistake that was unheard of at this level of competition, and the judges gave him a zero. He went to having first place wrapped up to eighth place because he got distracted. He was near the target, but it was way off. It was a mile off. And sometimes we think that, that, that our hope is set on the right target when we hope for many secondary things. Look, if it has a shelf life of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, it might be good. But we are called to set our hopes higher on something with a shelf life that lasts for eternity. And this is the return of Christ to see his face. But we have to love him to long for that. How's your thought life? How is your thought life? Do you love Jesus? Do you long for Jesus? Or is your mind drunk and influenced by the things of this world? How's your thought life? Secondly, how is your heart life? We go on to read in verse 14. As obedient children do not conform to the evil desires. Circle that word, desires. You had when you lived in ignorance. You see, holiness isn't about simply what we do. I got to be holy. I got to go to church. I can't do this. I can't do that. I got to do this. I got to do that. Holiness is not simply about what we do. Holiness is about what we desire. The pinnacle, the apex of the Christian life is delighting yourself in the Lord, desiring Christ. And so, in order to desire Christ, we have to say no to some things, and we have to say yes to other things. Because the more we say no to something, the less it has an influence upon our lives, and the more we say yes to something, the more it has an influence upon our lives, good or bad, either way. There was a man who had a dove. And this man loved this pet dove. This dove brought him so much peace and joy and love. It was his best friend. But then one day this man hears some whining outside the door and he looks out and there's this stray bulldog. So he lets the bulldog come in and he starts feeding the bulldog, becoming friends with the bulldog. The bulldog grows and it becomes more strong. And one day the man tried to go over and spend time with the dove that brought him so much peace and joy and love. But the bulldog got in the way, and the bulldog wouldn't let the man fellowship with the dove. It would bark and it would growl. And by now the bulldog had grown so big and the man so weak that the man just couldn't shove the bulldog out of the way. But the bulldog was intensely jealous of the dove and wouldn't let the man commune with the dove. So the man didn't have peace or joy or love, but this antagonistic bulldog fueled the man's anger and resentment and jealousy and hatefulness and impatience. And so the man's life went. But the man reminisced on the days that when it would commune with the dove and how the dove would fill his heart with so much peace, joy, and love. But he had a problem because the bulldog was too strong for him. It was just too strong. There was nothing he could do. One day the man had an idea. I'll stop feeding that bulldog, and I'll stop watering that bulldog, and I'll starve that bulldog out. 
And so the days and the weeks went and the man didn't feed or water the bulldog and that bulldog became so weak and frail and anemic that the man could grab it by its collar and it threw it out the door and it shut the door and it returned to the dove and communed and fellowshiped with the dove and the peace and the joy came back. And that bulldog is the flesh that relates to the world. And that dove is the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. You just have to stop feeding the bulldog. You've got to say no. But then you also have to start saying yes to the Spirit of Christ and feeding the Spirit of Christ that's within you. As long as you're feeding that bulldog, your life is going to be characterized by anger, jealousy, hate, lust, discord. There's a whole ugly list in Galatians chapter 5. But then when you say no to that bulldog, it's not just saying no, period. It's saying no to the bulldog, but saying yes to the Spirit. And you begin feeding the things that feed the Spirit. And your life will be characterized by peace, joy, love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The whole list there is in Galatians chapter 5. So as obedient children, and in saying no to the bulldog, and in saying yes to the Spirit, Peter implores and he calls upon us to remember our heritage. We are children, as obedient children. We have a father, as obedient children, saying no to the bulldog and yes to the spirit. There's a story that there was a deserter in Alexander the Great's army, and this deserter was brought before Alexander the Great, the young conqueror. He was brought before Alexander the Great himself. And Alexander the Great looked at this soldier who deserted his army, and he said, Soldier, what's your name? And the soldier said, Alexander. And Alexander thought about that, and he looked at this young soldier, and he said, Soldier, either change your behavior or change your name. And in the same way, we bear the name of Christ. We are children of our Father. Therefore, let's change our behavior to reflect our name that we bear. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Remember the good old days? They weren't good old days. They weren't good old days at all. Remember how empty you felt? Remember how lonely you felt? Remember how unsatisfying the world was? They weren't good old days at all. We were simply in ignorance. But desire instead the things that are consistent with who we are in Christ... In verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in most of the things that you do. Did anybody catch that? (laughs) Let me read that again. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in everything that you do. Not most of the things, everything. Holy when you wake up. Holy when you fix coffee. Holiness when you drive down the road. Holiness when you walk into the office. Holiness when you relate to people. Holiness when you make decisions. Holy at lunchtime. Holy when you're exercising. Holy when you're with your families. Holy when you're pursuing ministry. Holy when you're praying. Holy in entertainment. Holy in all things. Not some things, most things, Sunday morning things. All things in all that we do. Let's be holy. For it is written... Be holy, because I am holy. Wait, that's the Old Testament, right? No, this is the New Testament. Sometimes we think that the God of the Old Testament is angry and mad and blowing everything up. And the God of the New Testament just has butterflies just flying all around him. He's just sweet and gentle. He's passing out flowers to everybody. That's not the case at all. You read in the Old Testament, you read about a God who is gracious and merciful and compassionate. And you look in the New Testament and you read about a God who is holy and just 
and brings people to account for their sins. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God is holy and just and loving and grace. And God says, you bear my name. My spirit is within you. Be holy, not in some things, in all things, because I am holy. And what is holiness? Sometimes we think holiness is simply fasting. Holiness is growing out a long beard and living in a monastery and wearing a robe and, and echoing chants all the time. You want to know what the technical definition of holiness is? Well, let me give you a rather gruesome example of it. Imagine me chopping up a salad. You come over for lunch. I'm chopping up a salad and I have the knife and I'm cutting some carrots for the salad. And I cut my thumb off. And I pick up my thumb. At that point, that thumb would be holy. Why? Because it's cut off. The thumb is separated. The thumb is other than my body. This is the definition of holiness. It's separate. It's cut off. It's different than. This is the definition of God's holiness. He's otherly than us. He's altogether different than us. When Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, he didn't say loving, 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 although God is loving. He didn't say merciful, merciful, merciful. He didn't say justice, 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 though God is all of these things. He said, holy, holy, holy. You are altogether set apart. You are altogether different. You are holy. And all of God's characteristics, his love, his mercy, his justice, his goodness, his righteousness, it all flows from God's holiness. That is the essence that is the core of who he is he is different and we as followers of Jesus Christ in this world are to be set apart we are to be otherly we are to be different because God is holy and his holy spirit his holy spirit is within us this means we are to walk to a set of a different drummer altogether we're to have a whole set a different set of desires and longings and inclinations. There's a commercial that recently came out. And in this commercial, this man is in an airplane and this little kid is in the seat behind him and the kid is swinging his feet and just kicking this man's seat. You know how annoying that is, right? But you want to know how the man responded? He just laughed and laughed about that. It wasn't what you would expect. In that same commercial, there's a man standing in line at the grocery store and somebody had the basket and they were rolling the basket and they rolled too far and they hit him and it like... Like almost knocked him over, and he immediately responded by laughing. It's a little bit odd, isn't it? In that same commercial, this lady, she sits down on gum, and she stands up, and the gum is on the seat, and the gum is on her pants, and it like stretches, and she sees it, and she just begins laughing. Now, that's not your typical response to any of those things happening to you. You don't typically respond just by laughing at that. You would respond by anger and frustration or annoyance. It's odd. It's peculiar, it's different, it's otherly. Now, when an unbelieving world looks at followers of Jesus Christ and they see our desires, they see where we place our security, they see our longing, they see what brings us peace in life, they see what brings us joy, it is to be peculiar. It's to be different. It's to be otherly. It's to be holy. And it's not simply because of what we do, it's because of what we desire We desire Christ. We desire to see his face. And our minds and our heart and our hope is set on this primary longing that doesn't have a limited shelf life, that can endure and invigorate in any setting. And this hope is on seeing Christ face to face and hearing him say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I'm so proud of you. 
This is our heart. This is the Christian's hope. This is our desire that enables us to walk in holiness in a dark and godless and corrupted world. How's your thought life? How's your heart life? And then finally, how is your life? In verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live. Circle that word, live. How's your life? Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Let's not get too comfortable. I'm passenger Shane, and you're a passenger too. So let's live out our time here in reverent fear. I was taking some of the kids to CeCe's Pizza, so that was the plan. They're kids that we pick up from Stop 6 and bring to church. Awesome kids. Amazing. Eight and nine years old, three and four year olds. And they were looking so forward to going to CeCe's. I mean, it's like they hit the lottery, right? And they were on their best behavior all throughout Sunday school in order to go to CeCe's after church. So they were starting to get onto the van, and this one little three-year-old girl pushes this little four-year-old boy. And I noticed that. And I said, hey, guys, remember we were going to go to CeCe's? And they're all like, yes, yes, yes. I said, it's off. I'm taking you all home. They're like, what? I said, yeah, I just saw Samaripus J.C. Young. We're all going home. Like, but I was good in Sunday school. I said, I know, but Samara just pushed J.C. Young. They said, but we didn't do it. They did it. I said, yes, but they see you do that all week long. Why should they behave any differently? I need you to set a better example for them. And Bubba, who's nine years old, threw his head back. And he said, you mean I was good in Sunday school for nothing? (laughs) And my first thought was, oh, that immature little kid. I said, no, you weren't good for no reason at all. You were good for God. You were good for your character. You were good to have an example to others. But I've thought about that since. And I thought, how often I have that exact same heart when I don't get these secondary hopes in the timing that I anticipated or in the manner that I anticipated. I say, God, I fasted, I prayed, I worked, I persevered, I endured for nothing, and my heart grows cold. It's because my hope was set on secondary hopes rather than the primary hope of loving Christ, longing for Christ and seeing Him One of the most startling awakenings of my life was that God didn't care what I brought to the table. It was unimpressive to Him. When I became a follower of Jesus Christ, God's like, oh, wow, Shane is about to change the world for me. I was desperate for that to happen. No, you know what God is primarily concerned about? My character. Conforming ever into the image of Christ and my longings burning more and more and more for the return of Christ and to see His face. That's the inner space that God is concerned about. And if we fully surrender our inner space to Christ, don't worry about the outer space. It'll take care of itself. Don't you worry about the outer space. There will be 
blessings, more than you could imagine awaiting for you in the outer space. Don't worry about the outer space. Mountains will move in the outer space. Don't worry about the outer space. All things will work together for the good. Don't worry about the outer space. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Don't worry about the outer space. God's plans for you are a hope and a future. Don't worry about the outer space. You surrender the inner space. Your longings and your desires for Christ. Would you stand with me? Let me read our text together. And Cassidy, come on up. Let me read this text in its entirety. Verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. Is that your longing? Or have you bought into your best life now? Are you storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven, longing to see His face? Longing to know Him like you've never known Him? Is your hope a secondary hope? Does your hope have a shelf life of 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 35, 40, 50, 60, 70 years? Hey, that might be good stuff, but you better have a primary hope burning with passion in your heart, and that's to see His face And to see him look upon you with love and to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I am so proud of you. Is your primary hope the return of Christ? Or should he tarry his coming to see him face to face in glory? Let's set our hope fully on Christ returning. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, be holy in... What was that word? everything you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is New Testament stuff. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time here in reverent fear. And this is the punch right here. For you know that it was not with perishable things of silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty ways of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The precious blood of Jesus. We are bought with the price. We don't own ourselves. We are bought with the price. The precious blood of Jesus. How many of you guys have heard of the Shroud of Turin? I don't know if it's authentic or not. It's always fascinated me. I've enjoyed to study it. Regardless, it doesn't make or break my faith anyway. But it's the supposed burial cloth of Christ. And the theory is, at the time of his resurrection, there was a brilliant surge of light that created almost a photocopy image on a fabric that actually has DNA blood on it. it. And this photo image on this cloth has the... The ghostly image of a man that would look like from that era and the, and the lacerations and the markings of what would be a crucifix victim. Uh, victim. Again, I don't know. Whether it's authentic or not, who knows? It doesn't make or break my faith. But during my college years, I made a copy of that image because it, it had the lacerations of the victim on the back. And I imagined it was Christ. And I would, I would keep it in my pocket or keep it in my bag and Sometimes when I'd be inclined to sin, when I'd be inclined to allow my thoughts to stray in a manner that wasn't consistent with longing for Christ, I would take that out and I would look at it. And I would just say, thank you, Jesus, for purchasing me with your blood. Thank you. You did this for me. And I thought, you know, when Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, he died for all sins, past, present, and future. That means 
that if I don't sin now, retrospectively, 2,000 years ago, that's one less sin Jesus had to pay for that made his death perhaps a little less painful. And so I would just keep that and I would look at it and it would stir me into thoughts of holiness and desires for holiness. Holiness isn't about what we do, it's about what we desire. More specifically, it's about who we desire. And we have the ability, we have the capacity through the Holy Spirit living within us to desire Christ because we were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Let's desire Jesus. Let's long for Jesus. And I know that some of you feel like you're just maybe in bondage to some desires in this world. You feel enslaved to some desires in this world. And you've come to the place that Peter came to when he realized, I set out trying to deny myself, but I just ended up denying you, Lord. And he was broken. And you want to know what Jesus did when he restored him and resuscitated him and then gave him his spirit at Pentecost? You want to know what Jesus did? Jesus gave him an entirely new nature. Here's a saying, a cheetah can't change its spots. No, it can't, but a supernatural transformation can occur in a Christian. And we can change our spots through the power of Christ. He can give us a new nature, a new set of desires. He makes a lamb bold. He makes a lion meek. He can make you desire Christ, not the world. But like Peter, you have to come to a place of brokenness. And you have to say, I've tried it on my own. I've tried to deny myself, but I just ended up denying you and I made a mess. By your spirit, Lord, change my spots. Make me bold. Make me meek. Give me a new nature. Strengthen me not to desire this world, but to desire you. And this is the most important decision you can make this morning. And that's to confess your sins and confess to Jesus that you can't change your spots. You set out to deny yourself, but you just ended up like Peter, denying him. But like Peter, you need his spirit to infuse your heart and to cleanse you and give you a fresh set of desires, a set of desires that longs for Christ. This is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that will take place when you admit your brokenness and call out for the spirit to renew you and restore you. So would you bow your heads with me, please? Has this resonated with you? How's your heart life? How's your thought life? How's your life? Is your set of desires on a trajectory towards the main hope, the hope of glory, the hope of the face of Christ? Or do you feel enslaved? Do you feel in bondage to this world? Cry out to Jesus, say, I'm broken, but I trust your spirit to transform me, renew my mind, conform my heart, shape my life. And then pray for a new set of desires. This is what David prayed in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God loves that prayer. He will respond to that prayer with power and authority. And he'll wash over your spirit and he'll renew your set of desires. And realign them towards home, towards glory, towards himself. So... I'm just going to let you respond. The altars are open. I invite you to present your body a living sacrifice and ask the Spirit to give you a whole new set of desires. And let's also respond in thanking Christ for shedding His blood to redeem us and give us a new nature. And let's ascend this mountain of holiness this week. We've spent enough time at the base of it. Yes, God loves you, but the quality of life and your testimony isn't where God wants it. Let's shed what we need to shed to have a new set of desires to ascend the mountain of holiness Ah, where the air is peaceful and the view is vision and invigorates your heart and it's a testimony to those around you 
So let's respond.